John chapter 14, starting from verse 15. If you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live in you, because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. Then Judas, not Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus replied, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. All this I have spoken while still with you. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. You heard me say I am going away and I am coming back to you. If you loved me, you would be glad that I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. I have told you now, before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe. I will not say much more to you, for the Prince of this world is coming. He has no hold over me, but he comes so that the world may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Come now, let us leave. This is God's word. Let's pray as we turn to God's word together. Father God, we thank you that your spirit caused these words to be written. They are his words, your words. We thank you that he is with us now and we pray that he might help me to explain your truth and help all of us to understand and receive it as it is, not the words of men, but the word of God. Amen. Now, there is a lot of confusion about the Holy Spirit. There's a huge amount of confusion about the Holy Spirit in the church these days. Uh, The Bible tells us that God is triune, he's Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. One God in three persons. We saw a bit of that last week. But we are so often confused about the Holy Spirit that actually, in our minds, whatever we say with our lips, in our minds, lots of us Christians change the Trinity. So we have Father, Son, and the Force. We sort of think of the Holy Spirit as a kind of Star Wars-esque sort of power floating through the universe, an impersonal force of God. Or there is a Father, Son, and Embarrassing Uncle. Uh, you know, there's a, uh, we see the Holy Spirit when there's kind of weird behaviour in a Christian gathering. Ooh, uh, it was all a bit Holy Spirity there. Uh, we're uncomfortable about the Holy Spirit, and frankly, if he makes people act in a wacky way, we'd much rather he didn't show up. He's kind of like an embarrassing uncle at a wedding. 
Or there's the father-son and special effects. You know, life carries on, ticks along ordinarily, and then something unexplainable happens. Oh, that's the Holy Spirit. Anytime there's something supernatural, that's the Holy Spirit. Or there's a father-son and liver shiver, which is that, that, that sort of, that intense feeling. You sometimes get in really passionate worship, and oh, that was the, the Holy Spirit really touched me. In other words, we, we see the Holy Spirit is basically an emotional buzz. Uh, or there's uh, perhaps most worryingly, I think, Father, Son, and Genie. Uh, the Holy Spirit is basically God at my beck and call to do whatever I ask. He is my power to do my will. And then for many of us, there's just Father, Son, and the third wheel. Like I, I kind of I get God the Father, you know, the Old Testament, that's His stuff, and then Jesus, um, you know, Easter, the cross, and the resurrection. Great. I've no idea really what the Holy Spirit does, and I seem to have got along fine without him, and kind of like a third wheel. I just have no, no idea what to do with him. None of those ideas is right. And if that's the way we think, actually, as Christians, we're tragically missing out on the glorious truth of God's Holy Spirit. What John 14 tells us is not everything that the Bible is going to have to say. The Bible has an enormous amount to say about the Holy Spirit. But this does contain many of the most central truths. And in particular here, we're going to learn together from the lips of Jesus Christ that the Holy Spirit is Christ with us as helper and teacher. The Holy Spirit is Christ with us as helper and teacher. But before we get into the detail, there is a question that we often fail to ask but that we must ask if we're going to understand the Holy Spirit correctly. And that is, what question is the Holy Spirit the answer to? If the answer is the Holy Spirit, what is the question? It's like Jeopardy, the American game show, now that Sharon is suddenly very, very interested in seeing as her husband won about 15 episodes of it. But the, the, what, what question does he answer? If Jesus' answer is, ah, oh, the Holy Spirit, well, what question has been asked? Now, what need does he address? And this is where we uh, need to do a little bit of hard work in the context. So if you've closed your Bibles, open them back up at uh, John 14. John 14, page 1082. And then just turn uh, back with me to 13 and verse 31, just over the page. John 13, 31. Let's work out the context to work out what question is being answered. When he, that's Judas Iscariot, was gone, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified with him. So Judas has gone to betray Jesus and set in train the human causation of events that will lead to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And Jesus says this, verse 31, is the moment that he will be most glorified and will glorify his Father. In other words, he says, now, now you're really going to see what God is like. That's what it, to to glorify, it's like to shine out. He says, now you're really going to see what God is like, now that I'm going to die. Okay. Then in John 14, verse 6, which we looked at last week, Jesus explained that because he was going to die on the cross and then return to life in victory, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So I'm going to die on the cross Um, I'm going to be glorified fully. You'll see my mission to die on a cross. You'll see the love of God as I die on the cross. And you'll understand that I, Jesus, am the way, the truth, and the life. But then he also says, 
1333, I will be with you only a little while longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I'm going, you cannot come. We haven't got time to go through the whole passage, but basically what Jesus has taught them is, my mission, disciples, is to glorify God my Father by dying on a cross. I'll do everything that's necessary in dying on the cross and rising again to bring you safely to heaven. You don't have to do anything, to earn anything, to achieve anything. Just trust in me. I am now the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus says. And so I'm then going to leave and go back to the Father and prepare a place in paradise for you. And in the meantime, keep trusting me and keep doing the things I've commanded. Now put yourself in the disciples' sandals after three years with Jesus. What? Uh, you're leaving and you don't seem bothered about it. Uh, just trust you and just do what you said, as if it's that easy, Jesus. You know, for the past three years, have you not seen what kind of a mess we get into any time you turn your back? I mean, who's going to lead us now? We haven't got you with us, Jesus. You've just told us that Peter, the rock, is going to do a runner. He's going to betray you before this night's even over. So who of us can lead? Uh, and uh, where we find the strength and the encouragement? Some of us have, have lost our families because we follow you. All of us have have lost our careers and you've provided for us well who's going to provide for us now and who's going to teach us I mean do you think we could have come up with you know the sermon on the mount by having a brainstorm between the 12 of us do you know how different it would have looked if we'd just written it I mean come on Jesus how on earth can we do these things and Jesus answer in John 14 is don't worry I'm going but I'm going to send my spirit to you Don't worry that I'm going, because I'm going to send my spirit to you. And let's look at it under, um, firstly, these two headings. The Holy Spirit is Christ with us to help us, and the Holy Spirit is Christ with us to teach us. And then finally, so rejoice, Jesus is returning to the Father. So John 14, verse 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. It's an interesting place for Jesus to go at this point, having just told them that he's leaving. I think he's saying, look, if you really love me, it's not shown in the fact that you feel gutted that I'm going. It's shown in you doing what I've told you to do. Love, real love, translates into action. It is more than a feeling. And so when Jesus leaves the disciples and returns to heaven, then we'll find out whether they really love him by whether they obey him. And the same is true for you and for me. It's all very well saying, I love Jesus. It's all very well singing, I love Jesus. But it's seen in whether I serve him and obey him tomorrow when it counts. And it's not easy. I mean, you read in the Bible some of the things Jesus commands his followers to do, to put him first in absolutely everything. To give money to the poor rather than trying to get rich ourselves. To tell others about Jesus even when it leads to us being mocked. Or violently rejected. To love and forgive those who hate you. And to make that a little bit more grounded. That is even if you're a Coptic Christian in Egypt. That is even if people you love have just been blown up in a Palm Sunday service. Even then and even those people. No ifs, no buts. So how on earth 
are people like you and me, ordinary people like the disciples, supposed to do what Jesus said? How on earth are we going to obey him without him here to help us? Verse 16, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. We are not left to tough it out on our own. That's not the Christian life. God will send the Holy Spirit. Our translation calls him the advocate. It translates the word paraclete, which means one who is called to come alongside. A helper called to come alongside. Uh, We were fortunate enough to go to Malta um, a couple of weeks back. Um, It's basically a a rock somewhere between Sicily and North Africa. That's Malta for you. but, uh, and it's a, it's a strange place because they love Britain. They absolutely love the British there in Malta. Sadly, while we were there, that love for all things British had translated to uh, uh, even copying our weather, which uh, wasn't exactly what I uh, planned. It was less Mediterranean and more Middlesbrough, which, um, anyway, anyway, thankfully I'm not a bitter man. But um, the, uh, um, the, it was uh, one of many sort of colonies outposts, and at some point in the, in the Second World War, um, the, the British realised, oh, it's actually quite useful having a, a rock somewhere between Sicily and North Africa when uh, the Axis powers have the whole of the Mediterranean. And Malta got absolutely hammered. So Hitler had it bombed, and it was more heavily bombed, that tiny rock, than the whole of Britain. It was the most heavily bombed area. Valletta was the most heavily bombed city in the entire war extraordinary. And in 1942, things got to critical level. So um, Rommel is taking over North Africa, um, and Malta is the place where they're striking at his supply chain. Uh, But the problem is Malta is running out of petrol and supplies, uh, so they can't keep flying the missions. And so uh, the convoys are getting absolutely destroyed because they have to go all the way through the Mediterranean and face the Axis navies. Um, but they pulled together this convoy in, uh, in summer 1942, Operation Pedestal. And the most important ship in the whole convoy was the, the steamship Ohio, which we sort of nicked from the Americans, but it was all right because we were all friends at the time. And, um, and it was full of oil, which is very useful because there was none left on the island. Uh, but the, uh, the enemy forces weren't stupid. They could tell Ohio was the oil tanker, 100,000 barrels of oil. And so they absolutely went for it. It got hit amidships by a torpedo, blew a 27-foot hole in the middle of the, of the ship, and somehow it limped on. It was continually bombarded from the air. A bomb landed so close that it lifted the entire ship, think how big a ship that can hold 100,000 oil barrels is, out of the water and it landed back on the water. It had a, a bomber land on the front of it that got shot down. It had uh, numerous direct bomb hits, and then just before, um, while they were still somewhere away from the island, it got hit again, and the, and the back of the, bro- of the ship broke, and basically that was it. Um, but what happened was um, a destroyer, HMS Lebri, um, steamed in alongside and basically strapped itself to the Ohio was called in alongside, strapped itself to it, and Ohio was dead, useless. Basically, it was in two bits and ready to sink. Um, but the destroyer that came alongside strapped itself to Ohio and just dragged it all the way home. And that's the image we're to have of the Holy Spirit. You and I, it tends not to be enemy engagement that wrecks us as Christians. It's our own stupid sinfulness. But it's also, we live in a difficult, dangerous world. And often we feel like we're limping and we can't keep going on. And that's the image we're to have. God will get us safely home. He's not just going to leave us 
Say, come on, the survival of the fittest, let's see which of you makes it to heaven. He calls his Holy Spirit to come in alongside each of us and carry us, to strap himself to us and carry us. No matter how broken and feeble we are, he will get us there. The Spirit comes alongside us. He's the paraclete. But the news is even better in verses 17 to 18, believe it or not. The Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. In the Old Testament, God dwelt near his people symbolically in the temple. In the New Testament, in the Gospels, God dwelt among his people physically in the, in the, in the human Jesus, who was God in, in human flesh. But now, God dwells in each one of his people, truly by his spirit. He's not just the paraclete, para meaning alongside. He is also God living in us. In the Old Testament, uh, if you like, the Spirit was a temporary endowment for specific people. So the Spirit comes on the kings and the prophets and the warriors to enable them to do particular things. A temporary endowment for specific actions. In the New Testament, the Spirit is the permanent indwelling for every single believer. If you trust in Jesus, God lives in you by his Holy Spirit. Now that claim makes no sense to the world, he says in verse 17, because the spirit is not visible. Christians don't look any different. There's no medieval halo. You don't get a sort of glow or an aura about you. But as he says, Christians know the reality of his living in us. And you see in verse 18, the real reason we must never think of the spirit as the force or call the spirit it. Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans even though he's returned to heaven. How can we not be orphans? To be an orphan is to have uh, no parental relations looking after you. And he says, no, no, no. If you have the spirit with you, you're not an orphan. Jesus is still parenting us by his spirit. He is, a, he is God personally with us. In Romans 8 verse 9, the, the Holy Spirit is called the spirit of Christ. He, Christ, personal. The Spirit is God living in us. The Spirit is Christ with us forever. And verse 19 to 20, I think his point here is that the resurrection will prove the truth of these remarkable claims. So he says, before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. So if Jesus rises to have eternal life and we have his spirit, then the resurrection proves to us that we too will rise to eternal life. And when they see Jesus again after the resurrection, which is what I think he's talking about here, they'll, okay, at that point, they'll believe that Jesus claimed that he is in the Father and the Father is in him is all true. And then finally, he reminds them that God is known in a loving, obedient relationship. Or as verse 21 uh, will teach us, you cannot know Jesus without trusting, loving, and obey him. There's no theoretical knowledge of God. To know God is to know him personally, and that means to obey him. Verse 21, whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. 
Now, the other Judas, uh, not the Iscariot, not the, the betrayer, the other one, is slightly confused by this. And so verse 22 says, but Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? You know, surely, how can you reveal your glory to us and it not be apparent to everybody else? Because it'll be kind of blazing, unimaginably bright glory, won't it? He hasn't understood that uh, Jesus, uh, God's glory is veiled in Jesus at this stage. And it's only when Jesus returns at the end of time that he'll be seen in his full blazing glory. For now, the only way to know Jesus is to trust and obey him, verse 23. Jesus replied, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to my father who sent me. Okay, what's the big point here? Here's the big point. God has done everything, everything, everything necessary for our salvation, for us to make it safe to paradise. He sent his son to live the life you and I cannot live and to die the death that we deserve in our place. And then having done that, having done everything necessary for our salvation, he sent his spirit to enable us to trust the son, to trust his salvation so that we might make it home safely. The Holy Spirit is Christ with us to help us to ensure we'll make it to paradise. Okay, secondly, uh, Jesus teaches us that the Holy Spirit is Christ with us to teach us. He's not solely a helper who comes alongside and empowers. He is sent to teach us, verse 26. Or as verse 17 put it, he is the spirit of truth. Look with me at verse 25. All this I've spoken while still with you, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I've said to you. Peace I leave you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Now the whole meaning of this bit turns on one little word and it's very important we understand what this word is. I wonder if you spotted what that word was. It's the word you in verse 26. Who is you? Is it kind of any of us who read or is it just the apostles? Now lots of people assume anytime you read you in the Bible it must mean all of us. But that clearly can't be right. Look at 13 verse 38. Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly I tell you, before the cock crows, you will disown me three times. That's clearly him speaking just to Peter. So clearly sometimes when the Bible says you, it means a specific person, not just any reader. And there is something different about the apostles from the rest of us. And the New Testament makes that very, very clear. That the the Holy Spirit's ministry for the apostles is slightly different from from the rest of us. So a couple of um, pages over in Acts 1 verse 8, when Jesus commissions the apostles, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And with Judas out of the picture, as they're looking for a replacement, uh, a new number 12 apostle, it's interesting to note the criteria they apply in verse 22 of Acts 1. Therefore, it's necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time that the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So you see, the apostles were the authorized eyewitnesses. They're not just like you and me. 
They're commissioned by Jesus to, to proclaim the message of his resurrection and to take it out to the nations. And Jesus is promising here that the Holy Spirit will come and will teach the apostles the truths that they're to proclaim and remind the apostles of the things they saw Jesus do and heard Jesus say. Which means that the the words you and I read in these Bibles are not human reflections about God. The words of the Gospels that we just read tonight in John's Gospel are the words of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Truth speaking to us through the apostles. That's what primarily is going on here. Jesus is promising the apostles, I will give you the spirit of truth so that you can give people the truth about me. And we should be so grateful that promise has come true, that we can rely on the words here so that we can know with certainty what Jesus did and said. But there is a secondary meaning for us as well. You see, it is the Spirit who teaches us as we read the Apostles' book, the Bible. It's why we pray before we look at God's Word as a church. It's the Spirit who reminds us of the truths of Scripture as we go about our daily lives. You know, those times when uh, you're just struggling, you're ready to give up, and somehow you remember, you remember truths from the Bible about the goodness of God, the plan of God for his people. It's the Spirit who is the Spirit of truth and drives those truths into our hearts. So Jesus is the truth, and by his Spirit, he enabled the apostles to record his teaching. And by his Spirit, he enables us to access that teaching. We are people of truth if we're Christians. And we need the Spirit's truths. The lies are the weapons of the devil. And if we're to wage war, if we're to resist the devil's lies, then we need to be armed with God's truth so that we'll be able to stand firm and live and bear fruit. And if we call ourselves people of the Spirit, we must be people of truth. There is no place for lies in the life of the Christian. We're not to be people of spin or of deceit or of exaggeration. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. And if we claim to be people of the Holy Spirit, then you and I need to be people of truth. We have no need to fear truth, for God is true. Christians should never be afraid of truth. The Holy Spirit is Christ with us to teach us as well as Christ with us to help us. And then finally, briefly, so we should rejoice that Jesus is returning to the Father. Now, if the disciples got what Jesus was saying, uh, they would see it's really a good thing that Jesus is going to leave. Uh, verse 28, you heard me say, I'm going away and I'm coming back to you. If you loved me, you'd be glad I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. I've told you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe. I will not say much more to you, for the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold over me, but he comes so the world may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded. Come now, let us leave. So we see here first that love rejoices in what's best for others. The disciples are gutted that Jesus is going, not so much because they love him, but because they love themselves. And they don't want to lose what Jesus does for them. 
But if they really loved Jesus, then they would recognize the very best thing for Jesus is being with his Father in heaven, restored to the glory of that perfect relationship. And if they really loved him, they would want him to go and enjoy that. But they love themselves. Love, though, rejoices in what's best for the other. Love also obeys, verses 15 and 23, as we've seen again and again. And that goes for Jesus and not just for us. Verse 31, uh, he, that is the, the prince of this world, another word for the devil, comes so that the world may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. One of the reasons the devil will be allowed his day in, well, I'd say the sunshine, but it's more in the darkness. One of the reasons he will be allowed his time is so that it will be clear quite what lengths Jesus is willing to go to to obey and honour his Father God. Now there is a broader understanding of verse 28 that is right too. It's not just um, that they should rejoice in Jesus going to the Father because they love Jesus and it's the best thing for Jesus. It's also true that everything Jesus has taught in in chapter 14 has shown them what amazing things will happen if only Jesus returns to the Father. A place will be prepared in heaven for them and the Holy Spirit will come down to them. And so we should rejoice that Jesus is not here. It's not second best that you and I don't have Jesus physically around on earth. We really do have God with us. Jesus says that to have the Holy Spirit is to have him with us. Jesus is having himself with us, speaking his word, strengthening our faith, filling us with love and trust. We're not missing out. Okay, what should we do? We've, uh, we've seen lots of truth in this passage. What are we meant to do as we, uh, as we reflect on it? Well, obviously, I guess we should live by the Spirit. And we need to understand, I think from this passage, that the Christian life is both very easy and very, very difficult. See, actually, the Christian life is easier than you could have ever imagined. Because Jesus has done all the heavy lifting, if you like. You know, he's lived the life you and I can't live. He's died the death that we deserve. He's broken the power of sin and hell on the cross. And he's done all of those things in our place. So eternal life, a status is acceptable with God. Adoption as God's child. Love of the creator and security of his love forevermore. All those things are a gift that Jesus just gives us. We don't earn them, achieve them, afford them. He just gives them. When you think the Christian life, when you think in terms of what you've got to do to become a Christian, what you've got to do to get the blessings, it could not be any easier. It's far easier than we could ever imagine. But it is also very, very hard to live out. It is hard every day to trust and obey Jesus Christ. It's hard when the world around you thinks it's all just make-believe and laughs in a mocking way. It's hard when the world views Jesus' teaching as offensive Or the sacrifices he calls us to make is unhealthy when you're mocked, ridiculed and ignored. It's hard. It's hard every day to put to death my desires and in particular that overwhelming desire we all have to put me at the centre of the universe. And instead to live for the glory of Jesus and the love of others. Actually, when you think of what's involved in in genuinely following in Jesus' footsteps, the Christian life is not difficult. It is impossible. And that's why God sends us his Holy Spirit. And it does beg the question, I guess, of those of us who'd call ourselves Christians here, can you explain everything in your life by human means? 
Now, I need to be careful. Uh, you need to rely on things God has promised by his spirit. It's not like I'm saying, well, you know, I was told in church tonight that uh, some part of my life needs to be beyond human power. Here is a very tall building. Watch me jump. You know, whoa, whoa. The, the, the Bible doesn't promise you can jump off tall buildings. I think central to this section, actually, is the command to love. It's, it's throughout. Jesus' central command in chapter 13, he washes the disciples' feet as an example of it. And then in 13, 34, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this will everyone know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And we'll see throughout, he calls them to love. So I suspect that central, uppermost in Jesus' mind, as he, as he calls the um, the the disciples and and talks about the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit is the power to enable them to love beyond their means. And so I think the question it really asks me is, does the way I treat other people make sense to those who don't believe in Jesus? Or is there something about the people I choose to love and the self-sacrificial way I love that just doesn't quite make sense, doesn't quite add up? kind of points to the supernatural power of God being at work? Are the friendships that I press into rather than drawing back from when they get tired, costly and painful? And I do those things because I believe that the Holy Spirit will empower me to keep loving. See, Christians can expect supernatural resources as we seek to love beyond our abilities because it's what God commands us to do. One of the greatest bishops the Church of England's ever had, J.C. Ryle, said this, let us never rest till we feel and know that the Holy Spirit dwells in us. But how can I know? I think one of the clearest answers is you are never so sure that God's Spirit is in you as when you find God empowering you to do the things he's commanded, fighting sin, sharing the gospel, and above all, loving You're never so sure that God's spirit is in you as when you find him empowering you to do things that he has commanded in ways that you know are beyond your means. So live as if it's real. Take the risk. For the Holy Spirit is Christ with us to help us, but he's also Christ with us to teach us. So treat this book as not an academic thing necessarily. It is that, but more than that. This is a relational word. This is Jesus addressing each one of us personally. Expect to hear God speak and pray for it as you turn to his word. You know, when we go out into our days, there are a million and one decisions and difficulties we'll face that will stretch our wisdom, our ability to know what to do. And it would be lovely if you could just have Jesus there and say, what on earth should I do here? Well, we do. He has given us his certain solid word, full of wisdom, truth, and life. Don't go out into the day until you've heard God speak life to you. You know, 500 years ago, you could not have heard him, no matter how much you wanted. Living in this country 500 years ago, you could not hear God speak. Unless you were a priest, and you could speak Latin, and even then... The emphasis was never really about what the Bible said. It was more about what, the, what Duns Scotius and the, and the scholastics had said the Bible said. But brave and brilliant men like William Tyndale 
and women as well, shed their blood literally so that you and I could wake up, click on an app, and have God's word. He didn't invent an iPhone app. He (laughs) translated the Bible into vernacular, into English, so that people could invent iPhone apps and you and I could lie in bed and have God's word right there in our hands. An unimaginable privilege. They were willing to die so that we could have that. Make the most of it. Revel in it. Build daily disciplines around God's word. There is one tiny little question we just must address as we close, which is, okay, but how do I receive this Holy Spirit? He sounds wonderful. The power of God living in me. The truth of God for me. Or I'm a Christian. How can I be sure that I've got the Spirit in me? The answer is just wonderfully simple. Paul says in Galatians 3.2 that we receive the Holy Spirit by believing the gospel. It's that simple. When you put your trust in Jesus for the first time, God comes to live in you by his Spirit forever. And nothing can change that. And as you and I, who call ourselves Christians, consciously recommit ourselves to Christ each day, as we remind ourselves afresh of his promises, as we meditate and trust on the promises of God in his word, we are filled afresh with the spirit of God through his word, the spirit of power and truth. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that the Lord Jesus has not left us as orphans, but you have sent your spirit to us. Father, what an awesome privilege to have not a messenger of you or the power of you, but God himself living in us. Father, thank you too that uh, we have the very words of the spirit in the Bible. Thank you for enabling the apostles to remember, to record and to proclaim the truth. We pray that we would treasure it. And our Father, we pray that we would live lives that show that the power of you is at work in us to love, to serve, to obey your promises. Amen.